0: come out, I bring you, again, greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a privilege to be in the presence of those of like precious faith. Looking into God's word, I don't have anything to share myself, but the word is God's word and we look forward to hearing from it again this evening. The word is vital sustenance to each one who love and know the Lord God. Prayer is the preparation. We spoke about that last evening, the disking and the harrowing and the smoothing out of the rough places and the filling in the low places, preparation for what is planted. Now, I can't make anything germinate any more than you can. But as the ground is prepared and the seed goes forth, we know how that works in the physical life. The plant sprout, it germinates, it brings forth a plant. Certainly the word of God is more powerful even than a seed. And so thank you for coming this evening to hear again the word of God. We pray for, in a spiritual sense, that the seed would go forth and bring forth fruit. A theological question that sometimes is debated is, what is the primary characteristic of God? And often the top contenders are God's love and God's holiness. Does God's love outweigh his holiness, or does his holiness outweigh his love? And this is, of course, a foolish question, because God is both. And the emphasis of one to the minimizing of the other will lead us down a path of false doctrine and a warped view of God that we don't want to go. In different ages, and different settings, the pendulum swings to swing first in one direction and then the other with regard to the characteristic that's emphasized. My sense, however, is that in our day and in our age, the pendulum has swung in the direction that the focus is normally on the love of God, sometimes to the point of dismissing or diminishing His holiness. Various reasons for this. One is that man's sin, in man's sinful state, God's love is much more pleasant to think about than his holiness. And some people want to emphasize only the positive aspect of the gospel. Is if God is love, then that means that he is forgiving. He's merciful. He's kind. He's full of compassion. And of course, those are all true statements. God is all of those. But when his holiness is dismissed, then his love sometimes wrongly is extended to teach that he is lenient that he is easygoing, that there's no real sense of need to live a holy life because God will understand and he'll receive all men into his kingdom. On the other hand, if God is holy, that means that he's a judge and we will one day be called in account before him. It means he expects us to be holy and committed to serving him. Those who shy away from accountability or fear commitment, would therefore just as soon forget about the holiness of God and his expectation of holiness in we as his followers. The concept of holiness is actually foreign to some cultures. Whenever men and fathers and leaders are men of integrity, when they say what they mean, when they mean what they say, then words mean something. Decrees and promises are binding. Laws are enforced. It's easier under those circumstances to understand the concept of a holy, righteous God. But in a day when the concept of absolute truth is rejected, when those who break the laws expect amnesty or forgiveness with nothing to pay, when court cases are presented in a way that appeals to the emotion of the jury rather than or perhaps technicalities, legal technicalities, instead of seeking the truth about a certain situation and what's proper, what's truth, when immorality is falsely attributed to God because, well, God made me this way, when we live under that kind of an environment, then understanding the concept of a holy God is also foreign. Yes, God is love. We can never forget that truth. If it were not true... We would be forever lost. But also, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. I challenge you to find a statement in scripture where God is threefold, love, love, love. Now that, of course, in itself is not definitive. But I'd like to think about the holiness of God this evening and the implications of that for us as believers. First of all, what is holiness? Strong's defines the Greek word holy as meaning sacred, sacred. It denotes being physically pure, morally blameless, ceremonially consecrated. Holiness can also be translated as sanctification or godliness, something that's holy is. Sanctified, it's set apart for divine service. Objects or places are sometimes described as holy. You're, of course, familiar with the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. One of the commandments remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holiness is often used to speak of the ethical righteousness that God demands of his followers. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 7, Sanctify therefore yourselves and be ye holy, for I the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. But the ultimate definition, the ultimate example, the ultimate use of this word is in reference to the character of God himself. God's sinless righteousness. God is holy. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2, there is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside me. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For a text this evening, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. It says here, the one that inhabiteth eternity, the one whose name is holy, the one who lives in the high and holy place. There is only one for whom these statements can be made. Only one for whom these statements apply. That is almighty, holy God. And who does he live with? With those who are of a humble and contrite spirit. If we're proud and self-sufficient, if we have it all figured out, if we consider ourselves to be a step above the common person, then we have no need of God and he will not dwell with us. I dwell in the high and holy place with him as of a contrite and humble spirit. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Notice how God is pleased to characterize himself here. This statement exposes the folly of the proud whom he's reproving, for they cannot compare to him. But it also dispels the fears of the contrite. He's comforting here the contrite, those who are not proud. He's comforting them we see several things here that I'd th- like to notice. And first is his exclusiveness. He is in a category all his own. You know, as, as humans, we judge the value of something by making comparisons. You know, perhaps we need gas for the car, and the local Minimart has gas for $3.99 a gallon. Okay, well, because we need gas, we're willing to pay that. But then we find out that uh, the next station down the road has it for 369 a gallon. Well, all of a sudden, 399 is too much, right? And so we compare. We're continually comparing this with that. With regard to people, we're not wise to make comparisons, the scripture tells us, with regard to others. But in speaking of God, there's no room for comparison. For there's no one to compare him to. We try to make analogies for God. You know, we might say, well, it's like comparing a, a tiny atom to the vast universe. Or it's like uh, we, we try to make comparisons. It's like a second, you know, a second isn't very long. Comparing a second to eternity. That's how much big God is compared to who we are. But there is no comparison to God that lives up to its name. We can only scratch the surface. Some scripture sometimes gives us a comparison to visualize just a little bit of who he is. For example, Psalm 145 verse 3 says his greatness is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. We cannot compare with anything our human minds are unable to begin to comprehend. The one who in the words of Moses is from everlasting to everlasting. If you've tried to wrap your mind around from everlasting past to everlasting future, our human minds can't comprehend that. And that's God. God is beyond even that. In this verse, Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15, we see here His holiness. His name speaks to us of everything that we can comprehend about Him. His name is holy. And the fact that his name is holy tells us that his nature is holy. His works are holy. His providence is holy. His grace is holy. There are many attributes that we can attribute to God. Love and mercy and power and long-suffering, whatever it might be. The perfection of his holiness makes its stamp on all of those attributes. The holiness of God. And because He is holy, He is unable to look on sin. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Speaking about God, the holy God cannot look on sin. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4 states, For thou only art holy. When it comes to holiness, God's in a class by himself. He's the definition of holiness. He is the one whose name is holy. Since God cannot look on sin, and man is sinful, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, who then can enter into his presence? Who can come into the presence of a holy God? Who can meet or stand before him? God says here in verse 15 that I dwell in the high and holy place. All in his presence are holy. We just said that God alone is holy, but are there others who can enter this holy place? Are there others who can enter the presence of God? Well, angels who have not transgressed would be holy. We find them as messengers and other worshipers in God's presence. But what about man? Does man have a chance to enter into the presence of God? As we come to the book of Revelation, we find men around the throne of God in heaven. These are those who were once defiled in sin but have been washed from their sin in Christ's shed blood. God accepts the righteousness of Jesus Christ on their behalf and therefore counts them as holy. As such, he accepts the tribute of their praise. He provides them with his love. He allows them to enter into his presence there in heaven. We see another characteristic of those who are permitted into his presence. Verse 15, I dwell with him as of a contrite and humble spirit. A holy God, of course, loves holiness, but he also loves the desire of holiness. In a man, even though it might be imperfect, the humble are those who have a sense of their weakness and sinfulness. The contrite are those who sorrow deeply because of their sin before God, not so much because of the judgment that they'll face and dread, but rather sorrow because they loathe the sin that they find present in their lives. These are those who desire to be holy as God is holy. We see this attribute of contrition in Isaiah himself, as he found himself in a vision before Almighty God. I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Flip back a few verses, a few chapters. Isaiah chapter 6. A vision here of Isaiah. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train, that is the train of his robe, filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy We have here a description of the throne room of God. And who is present there? Well, we see there are seraphim, angels, holy beings here in the presence of God. Yet even they covered their face as if unworthy to look upon God. They also covered their feet, their their feet with their wings as though they were unworthy to serve this holy God. These holy creatures created beings were conscious that they were in the presence of God. They were as nothing. They showed great awe of this great God. And notice the thought on their minds. Notice the words on their lips. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Whether these three holies are a reference to the Trinity or whether it's just repetition for the purpose of emphasis, we cannot be sure. But this is the attribute that's especially glorious. It dominates all others here in this place. Holy, holy, holy. And what was Isaiah's response? Imagine a man, a mere man here in the presence of God. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I cannot stand to be here. I'm unworthy to be here. I'm sinful. I'm part of a sinful race. I cannot begin to measure up to the holiness that God demands. We see Isaiah's humility and his contrition here. He considered himself a leper, if you will, in the the midst of a leprous world. Whatever he may have thought of himself before this encounter, he was now speechless. It doesn't matter if we're a lowly street sweeper. Or for the President of the United States. It doesn't matter if we're an alcoholic or for a pastor. It doesn't matter if we live in a ghetto or in a mansion. Every human being must have and will have the same response when entering the presence of God I am unworthy to stand in his presence. And every man and woman, boy and girl, will experience this at some future day. Be a great day of fear and judgment for those who have not applied Jesus' blood. For those who have, yes, the gospel message frees us from the apprehension and from the fear of that day to the degree that we can look for it with great anticipation, but still the awareness of our unworthiness to stand in his presence. I believe, will be very much present when we stand before him. Isaiah was contrite, and God dwells with him as of a humble and contrite spirit. We see the response of God. Let's uh, pick up with verse 6. Isaiah chapter 6, continuing with verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utter- utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. The angel where he flew to Isaiah to declare that his iniquities were blotted out and his sin was purged. And this was symbolized by a coal from the altar that was applied to Isaiah's lips. Could God use such a man as Isaiah? Yes. To the Lord's question, who will go for us? Isaiah responded, here am I, send me. Isaiah was commissioned for service. It was not an easy task he was called to do. Before he began, Isaiah was told that he would not have a successful outcome. Israel would refuse to hear. They would refuse to repent. They would be carried out of the land where they lived. But Isaiah was to be God's messenger in the midst of it all, the holiness of God. What implications does this have for us living today? Just as the sinner fears, God's holiness does mean that God has high expectations for his people in the area of holiness. On Mount Sinai, God gave these words to Moses for the children of Israel in Exodus 19:6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. In Leviticus eleven forty four. 44. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. And ye shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves. Those are, of course, Old Testament verses to the nation of Israel. But the New Testament also. Calls on God's people, calls on us as a New Testament church to be people who are holy. Jesus is the embodiment of holiness. He insisted his disciples must have a higher standard of righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness was a false righteousness. He calls us to be higher than that. This theme of sanctification and holiness. Growing unto Christ's likeness and being consecrated for his use is prominent throughout the scriptures and the New Testament as well. Let's just look at a few here from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Now, conversation here is much broader than the words that we speak. Conversation here has to do with how we live. How we live. First Peter 1 Peter 1:16. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Let's flip over a page to chapter 2 and verse 9. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation... A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Recognize this is the New Testament. This is Peter speaking to believers. So here he's not speaking to the nation of Israel, but to believers. And he says, You are a holy nation. You're to be a holy people. Why should we be holy? God commands it. Just as we saw in many, many verses, God commands it. And It's essential for our spiritual well-being. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's strong language. Without holiness, we shall not see the Lord. We cannot, for He lives in a place that is holy. And in His presence is eternal life. Without holiness, we'd be forever excluded from His presence. And that's eternal death. Eternal separation from Almighty God. How do we become holy? Well, certainly as sinful men, we are all unholy. And there's nothing that we can do on our own to become holy. But the precious blood of Jesus is applied to those who believe and trust in him. And his righteousness is transferred to those to be to the saved when we trust in Jesus and when we put on his righteousness. <clears throat> the mistake that many professing Christians make is they then go on to say, "Well, Christ's blood has been applied, so I can now live as I please." That's a false premise. For those to whom Christ's blood has been applied, they will seek to live holy lives. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In this passage, Paul makes a distinction between those who are holy and those who are unholy. Like to begin with verse 21, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 21. If so be that you have heard him, speaking of Christ, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after Christ is created in righteousness and true holiness. Notice the characteristics of the new man. After God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We are called upon here to be renewed, to be changed, to be converted in the spirit of our minds, and put on this new man created in righteousness and true holiness. Holiness. Those living in the old man live entirely different from those who have put on the new man and follow holiness. We find the same plea in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, very familiar verses to you. I'm sure I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God be transformed renew your mind put on the new man live holy acceptable lives before God we're holy only through the blood of the Lord Jesus but we do have a role to play in that process and that is a commitment to follow the Lord and when we don't follow Him as we should, God loves us enough that He chastens us to bring us back to Himself. You know, Some take the view, well, God is love and so He'll overlook my sinfulness. Why should I therefore strive for holiness? No, rather we need to recognize that God in his love chastises us to bring us to holiness. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer speaks of our earthly fathers and how they correct and chastise us for our benefit. And then continues in chapter 12 and verse 10, he says, For they, speaking about our earthly fathers, they verily for a few days chastise us after their own pleasure. But he, that is God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of, Of his holiness. Why does he chastise us? So that we can be partakers of his holiness. He wants us to serve him and to love him and to be holy. God loves us enough that he chastises us when we fail so that we might be partakers of his holiness. And that's God's desire for us. He wants us to be holy. The lost, including those who profess to know Christ, but in reality don't know him, they have the underlying belief that a life of holiness will be boring. Did you ever hear anyone say that? A life of holiness, that's going to be boring. A life of holiness, that'll be bland. A life of holiness is a life without joy and happiness. But a life of holiness is tedious and unfulfilling. That's the deception of Satan. This is what Satan wants us to believe. It's what he wants mankind to believe. That's what he tells us. But you know, the truth is just the opposite. Psalm chapter 29 and verse 2 says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I tell you this evening that those who believe Satan's lie, who believe that happiness is found by following Satan, following our pleasures, following our flesh, following our self-will, they have never experienced the beauty of holiness. Consider where following Satan leads. It puts man consumed with alcohol in the ditch. It puts the drug addict consumed with finding enough money to buy his next fix in prison for stealing it brings unwanted pregnancies and venereal disease to those who are immoral it brings broken relationships and heartache and heartbreak to parents and to children and families it brings strife and violence in the home and the workplace it brings sorrow and turmoil in many different ways That's where following Satan leads. That's where following our selfish pleasures leads. But in contrast, consider the beauty of holiness, purity of thought and mind, freedom from perverse images and immoral thoughts, peace and joy that comes only from loving and knowing and serving God, right relationships with friends and brothers, neighbors, Strong relationships and support in the home. And in the end, eternal life. The beauty of holiness. And God gives us the choice. Is holiness worth pursuing? A thousand times, yes. But it takes turning our life over to the Lord and a commitment to listening to and following and a resignation to His will we can't face God and delight in Him when there's sin in our life. Whenever there's unconfessed sin, we have a difficult time praying. And the answer is, as David prayed in Psalm 51, Hide thy face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. For those who don't know the Lord, the first step is to recognize my own sin that I'm a sinner separated from God and that there's no way I myself can come to him. Rather, I need to cry out, as Paul did in Romans 7.24, a wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But Paul, of course, knew the answer in Romans 7.25. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The day will come when all of us will stand before the holy God. Do you look forward to that day? Or do you view it with a spirit of fear? Will he find us holy through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus? If not, we will not enter into his presence. We'll all someday stand before this holy God. Yes, with trembling feet because of who God is. But we can know that Jesus' righteousness has been applied to my life. That my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that makes all the difference as we think about that future time when we'll stand face to face with Almighty God. If you're here this evening and you've not made that decision, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, he's saying that you need to get right with God. You need to commit your life to him. If you want the Holy Spirit's help to live a holy life, you've had enough of this world and what it offers, we do want to extend to you this evening the opportunity to make that decision that Christ can save you, he can make you holy, he can make you right with God, so that that separation between you and a holy God can be broken down as you can come to know him. We want to have an invitation song, but before we do that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are holy, almighty God. And yet, those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior can also call you our Father. Dear Lord, but we recognize that those that don't know you, to you, you are not Father, you will be rather judge. Heavenly Fathers, we think about our lives this evening. and We think about what we are without you. We think about what we can be or are in you. Dear Lord, we see the great contrast. Dear Lord, I don't know if there's those here this evening that you're speaking to this evening or not. Those who have never made a profession of faith. Those who do not know you as Father. Dear Lord, if there are those here this evening, I pray that you would give them the courage to make that decision this evening, to stand and come forward and say, I want to choose Jesus. I want to live for him. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. I don't want to fear that day when I will stand before a holy God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that we have in it. And dear Lord, help us to read it faithfully and learn of you. And dear Lord, if there's those here this evening that don't know you, give them the strength and the courage to come to you even this evening. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If this evening you don't know God as your Savior and you fear that day when you will stand before Him, a holy God, I want to give you the invitation this evening to come and make that decision for the Lord Jesus this evening. What song will you sing? Song number 662. Songs of Faith and Praise. the lord is speaking to you this evening won't you come forward trust that's our prayers cry this evening says he lives with those who are of a contrite and humble spirit i trust that you are experiencing the beauty of holiness this evening that you as you live your day as you live your go to school and work and whatever your day holds forth that you live in the beauty of holiness praising god for what he has done and what he's going to do in your life. I was impressed with the commitment of the psalmist I would like to leave you with these words from Psalm 119, beginning with verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep thy law, yea, I will observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the ways of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Then verse 40, behold, I have longed after thy precepts, Quicken me in thy righteousness. I trust that's our heart's desire this evening, to be made alive, quickened in the righteousness of God. These are the words of a man seeking after holiness, and I trust that we make those words our own. Tomorrow evening, Lord willing, we'll be thinking about the subject of the beggarly rich man as we again gather to hear an open God's word. Thank you for your attendance this evening, for your attention, and uh, let's stand as we sing another song to be dismissed.